we have grace to discuss this a little bit further and to go into a little greater uh, depth on some of these topics. Okay. Everybody's had time to get their scriptures. Yeah, everybody's had time to get their proof texts ready and, and come at us. I just want to say that in discussing something like this, we have to understand, first of all, we believe in justification by faith. And we believe that every person in the world will die needing God's imputed righteousness and his imputed truth. Amen? And we believe that if we're walking by faith, whatever is lacking either in our understanding or in our conformity, he will credit to our account. But it is God who assesses our faith, and that faith is evidenced by our fruit, by our works. So we, 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 we're mindful of Romans 1 where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is being revealed. It's an ongoing process from faith to faith. So God's righteousness is not if it were, if he's solely referring to Christ's righteousness, Christ is not still, his work is finished on the cross. So the being revealed refers to our participation in such. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by his faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In John 3, Jesus says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, for fear his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So all of us are walking in all the light we can, all the light that is shown on our path. But none of us have all the light we need. All of us are walking in the light. Now, I didn't say sitting in the light. I didn't say standing in the light. The Bible says walking in the light. So in Proverbs 4.18, he says the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn shining brighter and brighter to the full light of day. What about Christians who didn't understand something that God may have shown you? Are they saved? Well, if they were walking by faith, then whatever was lacking in their understanding, would have been credited to them. Was their faith living or was it corpse faith? Amen? But we don't believe that everyone before Martin Luther went to hell, do we? And yet he brought an, an important element of justification by faith. But we recognize that even under a fallen, faulty system, prior to Luther, many countless would have made it. Nonetheless, 
And we don't either believe that just because others got their doctrine lined out more closely to the scripture that they are saved because of that. We are judged, we are assessed by our faith and God is the one who is going to ultimately assess that faith. In John 12, verse 35, Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says, For indeed, he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him. In, second, in verse 4, he says, For indeed, uh, yet we will live with him. Excuse me, for we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed toward us. And then he says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. So the ultimate reward of faith is relationship. The power of God living in us, Christ, is in you, unless you fail the test. So Paul holds out the distinct possibility that believers in the church at Corinth, after examining themselves, would find that they were not in the faith. And that would be evidenced by a lack of Christ's spirit abiding in them. In John 12, he says, I have come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings, he has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. What we do in ignorance, what we do outside of light or revelation, that's, we're not going to be judged for that. But when God shines light in our path, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And when he shines revelation then we come to a decision point where we say, I'm going to step forward and see the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Or I'm going to say, well, I was already saved before this, so I'm going to stay here entrenched in my unbelief. And in that case, we would be in danger of examining and seeing that we are no longer in the faith. Faith is not a moment in time. It is not a punctiliar event. Punctiliar, you won't find that in your dictionaries unless it's a theological dictionary, but punctiliar shares the same root as punctuation. It just means a point in time. Faith is not a point in time. It is a walk of trust, of obedience. In John, 1 John 1, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, now that's a saving claim right there. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, he does not say the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, has cleansed us from all sin. Christ's work is finished on the cross but it is daily applied as we walk in the light. Cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. This is John speaking to churchgoers, to believers, and he's including himself with the plural we. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. There's a future tense. To cleanse us. He is faithful and righteous to cleanse. He doesn't say just assert that it's already done. He says there's something you need to do to, to, to receive that. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. There's your big first sin right there. First John 2, he says, by this we know that we have come to know him. Now this is salvation language because this same writer wrote in John 17, 3 what salvation was. This is eternal life to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Now that leaves us wondering, well, do I know him? And John doesn't leave us guessing. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. This correlates to what John wrote from Jesus in John 14. He who loves me keeps my commandments. If we have a relationship with God, it will be evidenced by keeping his commandments. By this we know. Now, we are taught that if we are unsure about our salvation, we should just assert it and claim it. But that's not what he says. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. So now we see that keeping his word stems from love, not from legalism, not from externalism, not from fear. Whoever keeps his word, that is evidence of a love from God. And not any other baloney construct that is touted in the church today. Baloney is another theological term that you may or not, not find. <laughs> then he's gonna use, then he's gonna use a positional term. He says, by this we know that we are in him. The one who says, now being in him is salvation. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are. But that's not where he ends it. He says, who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Because if he is a place, if we can be in him, then he is a place, a corporate place. And that describes the realm of his Holy Spirit, for now the Lord is the Spirit. And it describes the realm of his fitly framed corporate body. It's not being into him as if I'm into an artist or something. This is actually a positional term to be in a place called Christ. He says, by this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now you hear that he ought to do it. We, we're comfortable with that. But he says this is how we know if we're in him. If you don't do it, you know you're not in him. And if you don't keep his commandments you know the love of God has not been shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Or if it has, you've lost it. Colossians 1.21. No, I want to start up earlier in that. Let's just get into that. 
I've got it written down here, but I want it, a little bit more of it. Do you have that already? Let's start in verse 19. If I don't get there first. Go ahead. Yes. Amen. It was the Father's good pleasure for all his fullness to dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile all things to himself. This is salvation language. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, atonement. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind, engaged in evil deeds... Now, how does the hostility and alienation, how does he describe that? Engaged in evil deeds. Yet now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That is not where it ends. There is this big little word right afterwards. Verse 23, he's presenting you before him holy Blameless and above reproach, if, if, indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So, that alone indicates, more than indicates, it emphatically states that we must continue in the faith. And does, not, not, does that not entail that faith is a progressive walk, is a state of mind and heart? It's an ongoing thing. It is not a point in time. It is distinctly possible that we would not continue and thereby lose those attributes. That is a, that is a qualifying statement. When he says that Christ is presenting you before God blamely and holy, if you continue. Now that will be massaged into non-existence by certain theologies. But there are too many scriptures to let that happen. Anybody can inter interject here. That also corresponds to Romans 11.20. Yes. felt convicted by, and this was a, maybe like a few weeks ago, but I wrote this question down, if you rebel and fall away, did you really believe? And then that leads me to the question of, is it possible to lose your f salvation based on what you're saying now? Thank you. Yeah, I want Brother um, Zach to wrap this up with the Wesley quote. Um, you want to get that? Do you have that? Um, but... To answer your question, yes and yes. Um, in short, it is possible for someone to fall away and that be evidence that they were never converted. But it is also possible for someone to be authentically converted and yet fall away. In 2 Peter 2, he says, If after we escape the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, that's again a salvation statement. 
because knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is eternal life. So he says, if after we escape the defilements that are in the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we are again entangled, and here's the operative word, and overcome. It is worse for them than at the beginning. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its vomit and a sow after washing to its wallowing in the mire. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to forsake the sacred commandment handed down to them. So in this, he says, their their latter end will be worse than the beginning. Before knowing it, they were damned because he who believes not is condemned already. Then they escaped the defilements that are in the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he puts that whole phrase in there, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, because he's, he's flagging it as a, a salvation uh, equation. And then he says, they are again entangled, which many Christians are going gonna, to happen. And then he adds, and overcome. It is, it is worse for them than at the beginning. Now that, among with countless other scriptures, Paul says, you know, if any man thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. He says, I fear lest I who have preached to others should myself become disqualified. He says, we are not of those who draw back to perdition, which is the Judas statement, but those who press on to the saving of the soul. So many other scriptures can, can elaborate that, but yes, you can lose your salvation. and We believe that is abundantly attested to in scripture. talking about and so some of the things you've already talked about feel free not to ask but this idea of imputation or accounting you know and it was accounted to them as righteousness and what coming up in my mind is this often used kind of cliche phrase that uh, when God sees me he doesn't see me he sees Jesus Christ and when we think about righteousness we think about it in these in these judicial terms as something being uh, put on, and you just you know referenced that he might present us holy and blameless, and then the idea being like, well, yeah, that's Christ's righteousness and His holiness. And so I'm just wondering, some of it you've already covered, but if there can be some clarity around around uh, this impartation aspect of where there is ignorance, it is imparted, and how that dynamic works. I know that was that was big on my own journey. But I think a lot of this, even this question right here, what this automatically brings up is the idea of election and predestination. You know, what's going to pop up into people's minds, right, is going to be, yeah, but what about that, um, you know, those whom the Father has given me, uh, I don't lose them, right? And those who are my sheep. And all of these references, whether in... Yes, sir. Ask that, those other two in a, in a moment so that we don't lose them. But let's deal with these one at a time. What was the first question you asked? <laughs> Oh, yes. Identity. Yes. So others could elaborate at more length on the modern identity teaching. But let me just say we believe it's a counterfeit to a legitimate identity teaching that is found in Scripture. So we would say that Jesus is the only one who is fully justified before God. And as it says in 1 Timothy 3.16, he was justified in the spirit. As John calls him, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
he was vindicated in the spirit. So he is the one declared righteous by God. Every time the Lord spoke from heaven, he made that declaration. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That declaration fulfills whatever declaration of righteousness is going to occur. It is fulfilled about Jesus. And that is why salvation terms and justification terms are always spoken of as uh, our need, in terms of our need to be in Christ. Now, to be in Christ is not something that we assume. That's identity theft. We examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. We do not pretend that we are in the faith. There are fruits and evidences that will demonstrate whether we are in the faith. Now, to be in Christ is to have his spirit in us. To belong to Christ is to have died in repentance. Galatians 5, those who, have, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with all its passions and desires. So there's a clear marker. Romans 8, he says, uh, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. He goes on and he says, if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So to be in Christ is to be in his spirit. It is to be in his body. It is to have crucified the flesh. And he does not offer us a pretense. He does not offer us identity theft. If I were, and I'm going to elaborate on this more tomorrow when I teach on baptism. But if I were a criminal and I wanted to evade justice, then I would, I would pretty much cop the evangelical approach to salvation. I would change the superficial appearances without altering the substance of who I am. A criminal trying to evade justice may dye his hair, which, of course, that, that's more than... They do dye their hair, but not for that purpose. But they would dye their hair. They might change their eye color. They might change where they hang out, etc., etc. But Christ does not come and offer us identity theft. He does not say, you can pretend to be me and the Father won't hate you. He says, if you'll die to who you are, I will actually give you my spirit. And though you were born as a son of Adam, when you receive the spirit of sonship, you will be a son of God. And I will actually give you my name in baptism. I will write my name on them, it says in Revelations, the name of my God and of the city of my God. And he will actually give us his character. Amen. That's the conformity, you know, Romans 5, uh, if these are yours and so on and so forth. So he's not offering us identity theft. He's offering us relational salvation through transformation that changes our position before justice. And we're going to use that word instead of the Father because we're not, we don't need to force a disagreement there. So he's changing our position. If that position is legitimate, then there is no us outside of Christ. For me to live is Christ. And to die is truly gain. Now, if there is a me outside of Christ, then with that autonomy, with that independence, belongs all the judgment that it once had. But if my life is hidden with Christ in God, then it need be essentially hidden, not in word, but in deed. If I have an identity apart from Christ, and I merely want to 
smack a Christ label onto my independent, rebellious, worldly identity, that's called identity theft. That's taking his passport when I really am still the man who is living for himself under his own lordship. But if, if we are united with Christ, it is through death. Paul says in Romans 6, speaking of repentance, we are united with him through death. In Romans 7, he says, as long as the husband is alive, if she marries another, she commits adultery. And he's speaking of our sin nature there. So as long as our sin nature is alive as the Lord of our lives, if we marry the Lord, we commit adultery. We commit fraud. And we're not going to be saved by fraud. But if he dies, referring to repentance, if that old, stubborn, rebellious, independent nature is dethroned in a legitimate repentance, then we are free to marry another, the Lord Jesus, and take on his name, take on his character, take on his spirit, take on him so that we are hidden and, and there is no identity outside of him. So just that's touching on, on the identity. Does anybody want to add to that? Go ahead. When, when Jesus encountered uh, some, the Jews, it says he, he came to some Jews who believed in him. And he says, if you continue in my word, you will, I think the correct grammar says you'll be knowing the truth and the truth will be setting you free. And they said, we're children of Abraham. We've never been in bondage to anyone. And here's that identity message. I think there's this, these unexamined assumptions that just, I mean, we're Christians. We've got to be. We've got to be right with God automatically. And he's saying, he who sins is a slave to sin. And he goes on to say, if you were children of Abraham, you would do the works that Abraham did, indicating that true faith is, a, is an obedience. You would walk in the steps of Abraham. And I keep thinking of Romans 10, where it says they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, indicating that there's a, there's a, a proper understanding of right relationship with God that's necessary to understand just because we're, we're, we're here or we're a part of this ministry or we think we're children of Abraham isn't something automatically that makes us righteous. And he says, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And I, I'm just saying, amen. It's, there's nothing automatic about this righteousness. We need to examine what, how does God define righteousness? And it's something that continues in this faith. We're not of those who draw back, but those who press on. He opposes drawing back to believing. And amen. I was thinking about this paradigm a lot too, and I've thought about the faith of Abraham that we see in Romans 4 that Paul's discussing, and he says that we are all his children, you know, and it, it seems to connect us to some type of faith though, and, and that there is something about this faith that is distinct. And when you really dig into that passage, it seems that the, the strength of it or the force of it is Abraham's belief that a promised seed would be born of him. You know, this idea that something would come forth even though his body was as good as dead, that God was able to perform that which he promised. And that word promise is so important in the New Testament because it's always speaking concerning the Holy Spirit this promise that God would give. And so maybe this would be helpful to show in the life 
of a disciple, what exactly we're talking about. How do you stay in the faith of Abraham? I even thought when Brother Ossie was uh, talking, he said, you know, you got to continue to walk in the faith. But I could see a lot of heads in here maybe saying, well, does that mean we got to continue to adhere to a set of facts? Is that what you're meaning? And that means if we just continue to adhere to those facts, then we're staying in the faith. When Paul said, I have fought the good fight of faith, is he saying, I didn't deny a single bit? I, you know, or, or is he talking about some type of different struggle? Something that was more dynamic than that, that he stayed in all the way through in his life. And let's talk about Peter for a moment, that maybe this would be helpful. You know, was it saving faith when Peter left his boat to follow the Lord? It was saving faith. He walked in the light that he had. He most certainly did. Was it saving faith when he continued on that and um, was told that he would have this anointing to go out into the villages two by two and they would cast out demons and they would heal the sick? Did he have faith to do those things? Yes, he did. He continued in the faith of Abraham. However, if at any point Peter would have said, you know what? I feel this self-reliance and self-confidence in me, and it's just who I am. At that point, he has abandoned the faith of Abraham. You see, he's got to keep going to Calvary, where Peter is going to be buried in the water. He's going to go into that death. And on the other side of that, a seed of promise is going to be born in him. And I believe for people in this room, the most confusing thing is I had an encounter with God. Where does that fit in? People told me I was saved then. So what are you all saying? I don't feel like obeying God from the heart per se. In fact, I feel a lot of fear over what you're saying. I feel unsettled about where I am in relationship. The question is, will you continue into the faith of Abraham? Will you continue to believe, no, you don't have to settle for having a heart full of lust. You don't have to settle for being double-minded the rest of your life. In fact, you have to not settle and believe in a God who raises the dead. And that's the faith that God is calling us to. That's the faith you can't shrink back from. That's the faith that you got to continue in all the way through. And if it leads you into the brightest light you've ever seen in your life and it exposes every false and crooked way in your heart, will you shrink back? Or will you go, God, just reveal it all then? Show the truth of it, and maybe that truth will set me free. Maybe for the first time in my life, I might actually walk in some type of power, some type of newness, that I'm never going to be enslaved again. You see, the power of God unto salvation is not to leave you in the pit. It is to raise you up out of that into the newness of life. And that's the promise of saving faith. That's the faith of Abraham. And that's what we all need to walk in. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking of this passage in Romans. I feel that the witness of the Lord's love and spirit right now. I'm thinking of this passage in Romans 11 where he says, verse 19, You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. Godly fear does not disagree with godly faith. They are of a piece. Abraham, Noah heard and obeyed with godly fear. 
and built an ark. So listen to this, verse 20. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you God's kindness if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you also will be cut off. Now this is written to saints of God at Rome. And he says you stand by your faith but fear for God will not spare you and you will be cut off if you do not continue in your faith. Now, anyone who teaches a doctrine that makes no room for these clear truths is teaching a lie. Yes, go ahead. Sure. I'm going to thank Jason Lee for this quote, but truly the thanks goes to John Wesley. He, this is something that he wrote that I think will touch on this pretty powerfully. Calvinists who deny that salvation can ever be lost, reason on the subject in a marvelous way. They tell us that no virgin's lamp can go out. No promising harvest can be choked with thorns. No branch in Christ can ever be cut off from unfruitfulness. No pardon can ever be forfeited, and no name blotted out of God's book. They insist that no salt can ever lose its savor. Nobody can ever receive the grace of God in vain. No one can bury his talents. No one can neglect such a great a salvation. Trifle away a day of grace. Look back after putting his hand to the gospel plow. Nobody can grieve the spirit till he is quenched and strives no more. Nor deny the Lord that bought them nor bring upon themselves swift destruction. Nobody or body of believers can ever get so lukewarm that Jesus will spew them out of his mouth. They use reams of paper to argue that if anyone ever got lost, he was never found. That if anyone falls, he never stood. If anyone was cast forth, he was never in. If anyone ever withered, he was never green. And that if any man draws back, it proves that he never had anything to draw back from. That if one ever falls away into spiritual darkness, he was never enlightened. That if you can again get yourself entangled in the pollutions of this world, it shows that you never escaped. That if you put salvation away, you never had it to put it away. And if you make shipwreck your faith, there was no ship of faith to begin with. In short, they say, if you get it, you can't lose it. If you lose it, you never had it. May God save us from accepting a doctrine that must be defended by such fallacious reasoning. type of rationale but it, it begs the question though of the idea of election and predestination what is God saying when he's saying those whom I called I justified and those whom I justified I sanctified those I was sanctified I glorified because this is this is a pretty massive edifice that really if, if there cannot be we talk about this the simplest answer in Occam's razor where is the synthesis then between those two ideas, this idea of a walk of faith that is relational in which you can choose to either respond or not respond, which is clear. But 
in current evangelicalism, there's a massive disjunction then between the idea, though, of an election, an election or predestination or a calling of God that is irrevocable. And with, so where do we see those come together in a synthesis rather than a confusion? Well, to t teach on predestination and to undo Reformed theology, first of all, I want to say, if we feel fervently about doctrines that hold people captives, captive, it is because of our love for those people. We do not love the liars, the hypocritical liars who have invented this garbage, but we do love God's people who are confused by this nonsense. And if we speak passionately against anything, please do not take it personally. We, we, we feel that we owe it to God's people and to the Lord to free people from a pattern of utter helplessness and fruitlessness that these doctrines have created. These doctrines are complicit for creating the culture that surrounds us today, a culture of release, a culture of rebellion, a culture of insanity, if I might say so. And so that's the passion that we feel. It is Christ's word and, and, and salvation is not so powerless and fruitless. And we feel jealous toward God that he not receive the black eye, which he is now getting because of this, these, these baloney doctrines. Um, so predestination is a huge topic. And we can spend the entire symposium going through that. But let me give just a couple broad uh, frameworks. First of all, we do believe that the Bible teaches predestination. But we do not believe it refers to individual salvific predestination. So we believe that we are predestined in him before the foundation of the world. Meaning that he was in the mind of God. He, the body of Christ, the corporate entity of Jesus, was always predestined. Amen? But we do not see that individuals cannot transcend their, uh, the course of their life through the grace of God, through God's prevenient grace, they can be empowered to transcend the course of their life and find themselves in the covenant of Christ. So it is a people that is predestined. That is the people of God. And we see throughout history, time and time again, those who were not predestined for salvation, transcending by faith and becoming heroes of faith in joining the people of God. God is unchanging, but we can change. So the Lord passes a statement. Now, I want you to, to synthesize this. God is unchanging. I am Yahweh and I change not. Listen to this. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and declare unto them in three days they, they will be destroyed. So the people are in line for judgment. God is not going to change. But through repentance, they're going to move from the category of the condemned to the category of the blessed. And so Noah goes to the city and preaches repentance and says, I mean, not Noah, Jonah, goes to the city and preaches judgment, which produces repentance. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They humble themselves. The Lord has decreed. There's your sovereign decree. And they move over into this camp. 
And Jonah's sitting up there pouting, saying, you are always like this, relenting, showing mercy. You know. <laughs> I am Yahweh, and I change not, but you can change. You can repent. And so we see the Lord saying to, to uh, Moses, never shall a Moabite enter the congregation of my people forever, for 10 generations. But then we see this woman through covenant named Ruth saying, your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Where you go, I will go. And she moves and changes her position and comes in line with the blessed. She doesn't come as a Moabitess. She loses her identity. She can no longer be called a Moabitess. She is now the grandmother of King David and the great-great-grandmother of the Messiah. We see in Jesus' day, a Syrophoenician pagan woman coming to him and saying, you know, Lord, my daughter. And he makes an unequivocal statement. And he changes not. He says, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But what makes you a child of Israel? If you walk by faith. So he tells her, no. You are part of the wrong covenant. You worship the wrong gods. There's a no given to you. And she, through her humility, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And he goes, well, now, wait a minute. You just surpassed all the faith of Israel. <laughs> he says, woman, great is your faith. I have not seen such great faith even in all of Israel. And he grants it to her. He doesn't call her a dog. He calls her woman. She has changed her position. He's not whimsical. He's not fickle. He's not having a sovereign decree and then changing his mind. She left the camp that is still condemned and she moved to the camp that is justified. In the days of Hezekiah, he sends for the prophet Isaiah and he asks, I'm sick, am I going to die? And the Lord speaks to Isaiah and says, tell Hezekiah, you're gonna die. Hezekiah turns and he humbles himself and he cries out, oh sovereign Yahweh, Remember me. The prophet can't even get to the middle courtyard before the Lord says, go back and tell him he's going to live 15 more years. And as a sign, I'm pushing the sun back 10 paces. All 19 civilizations that were recording um, astronomy at that time marked that on the calendar. So did, did God change his mind? You will, you won't. Paul says his word is not yes and no. But all the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes, and through him is the amen. But Hezekiah moved from one place to the other. Even Ahab, who was a bona fide jerk. <laughs> he, he was eligible for a real bruising, and he humbled himself. And even though he went back to the bruising camp, he humbled himself. And for a season, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Amen. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so we believe in predestination, but it is corporate. It is not individual. And everything, one of the best passages to debunk predestination is Romans 9. It utterly destroys salvific predestination because it shows God's choice. We'll use that in an, as natural election and his priority on the people of Israel prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit which would enable, bring access to all, because he says, before the Spirit, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Post-Spirit, he says, 
you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost ends of the earth. So God put a priority on the people of Israel. They didn't all end up coming to salvation. He just, Paul justifies that choice. But everything he says about choice is sandwiched between the grieving statement, they're not saved and they're not saved. So whatever that is, that election, that priority of preference that he put on that people did not result in their salvation. And that is where he says, if they do not persist in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. So I'm, that, I just gave a brief summation, and you can, we can pick at that all day long. In fact, we won't, but we could spend the entire symposium talking about that. And believe me, we'd love to. <laughs> but just in, encapsulate that, that's, that's going to be our position. I'm going to get to none will snatch them out of my hand in just a minute. But I want to I touch on what you said about imputation versus impartation, because this is key. If imputation is occurring, impartation is in process. Just think about that. So God is crediting to us the full measure of what he is gradually imparting to us. Does that make sense? So if I, if I purchase a house, but I don't have the money to buy it with one purchase, with, I don't have the cash on hand, I'm going to take out a loan. And that loan is going to be a 30-year mortgage. And when you come and you see my new house, it is not dishonest for me to say, this is our new home. It is true for me to claim this as mine. I have this. And this is, this is how justification and, 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 and salvation is working. Now, it is on an agreement. It is based on an agreement with the giver that I continue to walk faithful that I make the payments. Now, this is a somewhat confusing analogy. It's not perfectly parallel, but Christ's sacrifice is what atones for us. No man can do anything to earn his salvation. Amen? And yet, that atoning sacrifice is not indiscriminately given to all people, though it is sufficient for all people. It is not limited. It is unlimited atonement. He himself is the propitiation of our sins and not of ours only, but those of the whole world. And I could give five more just like that. So it is for the whole world, and yet the whole world is not receiving it. So how do I become eligible to receive it? By walking in faith. Walking in the light as he himself is in the light. That's how I become eligible to receive it. So I am called to take up my cross daily. Does my cross atone for my sins like Calvary did? No. No. But I'm still called to take it up. Why? Because my cross represents my relationship with Christ. My sacrifices unite me to him. But his sacrifice is what saved me. Do you understand? So one refers to our relationship, our connection, our covenant, our trust, our faith in him. The other to that matchless sacrifice that no man could ever touch. That is finished. But it's not finished for us. So in, to, to exemplify this, this uh, impartation and imputation, Romans 4.9 says, Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision 
a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. So what he's saying here is that prior to Abraham or the Lord inaugurating the covenant with Abraham through circumcision, Abraham had faith. He had belief in God. And he was saved before that Old Testament covenant was inaugurated because it was imputed to him. That covenant was imputed to him. Now, if he had come to circumcision and said, I think I'd rather not because I'm already saved apart from it, then he would have broken that faith that was saving him. He would have departed from that faith. So the Lord says, whoever is not circumcised has broken my covenant. He shall be put out from his people. And he said that to Abraham, the man who's already saved. So in this sense, we can see that as soon as someone comes to legitimate saving trust in God, though they be the thief on the cross, though they be Abraham, they, God is imputing to them everything they don't yet know. But it doesn't mean they don't have to keep walking until he unfolds from faith to faith and glory to glory, the righteousness of God is being revealed. Do you understand? So we're not justified because of what we do. We're justified because of what he did, but we do not receive that except through faith. And that faith is not punctiliar. It is a walk. It is a journey. Perfect illustration of this is Hebrews 11, where he says, these all died in faith, not having received what was promised, but having seen it afar off, they welcomed it. They welcomed it and acknowledged that they were strangers and aliens. And for that reason, God is not ashamed to be called their God. So they saw it afar off. They died having not received it. But those who died having not received it, though they were saved in the days of Jesus, those who said, look, Abraham and Moses didn't have this, so we don't have to have it either. Were, did they continue to be saved? No. Those who refused to move forward they lost the salvation that covered those behind them. This is a walk. This is a journey. Do you understand? Those who said, we don't have to be baptized. We don't have to confess Jesus. We don't have to repent because we have Abraham as our father. Did they remain saved? No, indeed. But they, those who died who were saved saw God's promises afar and they welcomed them. Well, there's the attitude of saving faith that says, God, I don't know everything you're going to show me. There may be truths that you're going to show me. There may be righteousness that you're going to empower me to. But I don't, I don't know about that. But I know you. I know whom I have believed. Amen. And I welcome it. I'm not putting my arms out and saying, have I solved my God problem? I'm not defensive towards you. I'm not hoping that there's nothing more that I have to walk in. I am wanting you. I'm wanting to increase in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm wanting to grow in respect to salvation. Amen. I'm wanting to go on to know the Lord, to quote three passages. Amen. And if that's my mindset, then I'm saved by that faith, regardless of what I've got or don't got. Do you understand? So long as I keep that thing, that, that attitude. So someone will say to me, I don't believe I have to obey this because I remember grandma. She was a great Christian, and she didn't believe this. Well, that doesn't work. 
That's like saying, I don't believe I have to obey this because Abraham didn't know about Jesus, so I don't have to know about him either. I know that's a more extreme example, but it's nonetheless the same thing. What does he say in Hebrews 11? He says, they were made perfect with us. All of those who came before us who were faithful, although John Wesley's and the Charles Wesley's and all the faithful throughout the generations, they were building a road to Zion and they gave their lives to get us closer to the gates of that city. And we dishonor them when we stop, when the road has a half a mile left to build. And we say, it was good enough for grandma, it's good enough for me. You know, we have grandma as our example. We have grandpa as our example. No, they are made perfect with us. We betray everything they gave their lives to if we don't finish the road. They may have laid 10,000 miles and we've got a quarter mile left, but if we'll go ahead and finish it, then they are completed in us. We don't dishonor them by continuing in more revelation. We honor them. We continue what they began by bringing this thing to completion. And we're on a long process of restoration, so don't give me this garbage about grandma this and so-and-so was righteous. And you know, no, what, what is God showing to you today? It's not based on your worthiness. It's based on him and the one who calls. And he is deciding that in this hour, he would reveal more of his, himself, more of his truth to this generation. And if we step into it with all our hearts, then we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And they're cheering us from the bleachers saying, finish it, guys. You've only got a quarter mile. We put a thousand down. Amen. Now let's do is snatch them out of my hand. Go ahead. Can I just add one thing to what you're sharing? I just think the minimalist mindset that we talked about before is always going to say, what about him, Lord? It always wants to look at somebody else and say, surely there's some lower standard, and if God is accepting something less over here, then it's somehow not right for him to require more of me. But if we turn that around in this relational paradigm that we're talking about, we can still say, what about him, Lord? But it's, Lord, can I help him too? <laughs> Lord, can I reach for him? Is there a way that I can share with him this new step that you've spoken to me? I just read this old John 10, you know, the, the, the good shepherd passage. I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, he's speaking to the, to the religious, because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear, and that's present continuous. They are hearing my voice, and I know them. Again, this relational. It's relational. And they are following me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hands. But he's not saying they are resisting to follow me. They are ceasing to walk in this relationship, and no one can snatch them out of my hands. It's based on everything, the scriptures we've been reading, and this continuous relationship. They're staying in the relationship that is their security. Amen? And in that relationship, is, is it, are they perfect? Do they never make a mistake? Of course they do. 
Uh, we, we all stumble in many ways, James said. The scriptures John said, if anyone says he has no sin, he's a liar. But we're in, if we're in that relationship where by God has continued to speak to us, where the truth is continuing to make us free, we're, God speaks to those things. God de- delivers us from those things. We're walking in this context where we're being cleansed continuously by the blood of Jesus. And when we're in that place, nothing can snatch us out. Amen? We are held by the power of God. But we can make a choice that says, I'm not doing this anymore. We can draw back to perdition. Amen? <laughs> but Romans 8. Who will separate us from the love of God? Well, good news is no one but you. But in Galatians 5.4, he says, you have fallen from grace. You have been separated from Christ. So we cannot harmonize scriptures like that with that truncated view that says we can never lose it once we got it. You know, the Bible does teach security, but it does not teach it as something that engenders passivity on our part. He says, if you continue firmly rooted and established, there's your security. And he also teaches that we're not prone to lose our salvation between every blink of the eye, but he says it's because of God's long-suffering. He said God is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God's not, he, he's sovereign enough to keep you alive long enough for you to come to repentance. So don't give me this notion that he's, he's so sovereign that nobody can take you away. He's, you're made in his image. You're made with a will, a choice. And you can fall from grace. You can be severed from Christ, as he says right here. You have been severed from Christ. You, have, you are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. You're wanting this point in time. You're wanting to say it's already done through, through the, the, the Mosaic law. And he said, you've fallen from that grace. So we can clearly sever ourselves through the choices, but no outside force can ever peel us out of God's hand. Neither height nor depth nor principalities or powers nor things present nor things to come nor any created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. But you can walk out of Christ Jesus. He doesn't lock the door behind you. He doesn't violate your sovereign free will, which reflects his own sovereign image when he brings you into Christ. That's why we see people like Demas, who was a brother with Paul, mentioned as one of the, the, those ministering with Paul. And he says, he has forsaken me and gone after the world. Amen. So no one will snatch us, but we can walk out freely. Hello. I was thinking about what's happened at this point in time in the church that a book like 1 John, in which it says, I've written these things that your joy may be full, instead causes most of the people to read its statements and feel really uncomfortable, you know? Um, I think a lot of people in this room are, well, I can't say that. I don't know how many people in this room, but are maybe going, is this true, what's being said? And, and wow, this is... You know, is this a trustworthy statement? And yet, listen to Paul writing to Timothy. This saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, then we will also live with him. If we will endure, we will also reign with him. 
If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If you just think for a minute, how is it that in a shorter phrase, that's what Paul just said to Timothy, what Brother Ossie just shared at, at great length. And yet most of us in here would be, is that a trustworthy statement? And yet Paul, in trying to make sure that these doctrines were known and understood, this walk of faith, this life of faith, saying, this is a trustworthy statement. This is something you can bank on. This is something you can rely on. And, and I, I'm just, what I'm thinking about is when Brother Dan opened this whole time up with uh, the ways you can fail at a community. And he said that the first one we were going to talk about, well, was it faith? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Okay, yes. So <clears throat> I think that it's becoming more and more apparent in this room why this would be so foundational to God's people. Listen to what Jude says. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. So he had a lot of things he wanted to say. Maybe that's what this conference feels like. There's a lot of things that would be nice to share with everyone about community. He says, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now you all say, okay, yeah, he's talking about this abstract set of doctrine. Well, let's go on. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, I want to bring to remembrance something even though you guys all once understood these things. That Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He can't be any more clear with the faith he is saying he must speak about that we must contend for. There is no community outside of a revelation of this understanding that's being discussed today to run after God with all your heart. Amen. Um, I just had a question. We're talking about legalism, and you led off with the, the uh, example of paying your taxes, right? And then Brother Dan also talked about the, the minimalism just recently. But um, I, I'm a little bit confused. Like in Acts 15, at the Council of Jerusalem, and the Pharisees are saying, the Gentiles have to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. And Peter stands up and says, wait a minute. You know, why would you test God that way, right? We believe that they're saved through Lord Jesus just like we are. And then James stands up and says, well, we shouldn't make it too hard for them, right? And so they end up writing this letter saying, anybody who's turning to God, you only have to follow like these three rules. And so I'm confused. It seems like either they're saying that there are two different laws for the Jews and for the Gentiles, or they're lowering the barrier of entry because they don't want it to be too scary. Um, I was wondering if you could give me your thoughts on that. Jesus certainly combated legalism as... Uh, you're referring to there in Acts 15. He told the Pharisees, you heap on people 
a burden too great to bear. Uh, Neither you nor your fathers could bear it, and so on and so forth. And so we're not in any way suggesting that, first of all, the legalism that they're talking about is fulfillment of the ceremonial law. And it's the law of Moses that is incapable of making anyone righteous. How did Paul say it? If the law had been capable of imparting life, it... Say, if the law could have given life, then righteousness would have been by the law. That's why the law could not save us, because it could not bring life. And again, he says in Colossians, when he speaks against this form of legalism that you're describing, he says, you know, you're, you're being subjected to do not touch, do not taste, so on and so forth. But why does he repudiate it? He says, these, to be sure, have an appearance of religion, an appearance of piety in self-made religion, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So the reason he puts it away in that case is because it is not lethal enough against the flesh. It is of no value against fleshly indulgence. And then again, going back to the situation there with the Gentiles, if you're asking people to be subjected to a ceremonial law that does not correlate to salvation, then you're putting them under an unnecessary yoke and an unnecessary obligation. And we would, we would think that was foolish, uh, just as they did. But it does not mean that... So he's referring to the ceremonial law there. It does not mean that the law of the Spirit is entirely fulfilled by just completing those four aspects of the ceremonial law that they were carrying over. Rather, the law of the Spirit encompasses all of life. Anybody else? Just, uh, Brother Asa, just just want to pull together these thoughts. Um, Faith is a progressive walk. And then our faith is not punctiliar. And our salvation is not so would I be correct to say these two positions are congruent based upon Colossians 1.23 said we must continue and Hebrews 6 and 1 said we must go on. Yes. So our faith is not punctiliar and our salvation is not punctiliar. Correct. Congruent position? Yes, sir. <laughs> and to that, Colossians 1.19-23 add Romans... Uh, 11, 20 through 22. Amen. Does anybody want to, anybody want to give us one about if you believe, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart? Come on. Don't you know your Bibles? Don't you know the plan of salvation? Help us out here. So if you want to talk about that, go ahead. But, um, you know, this is more from a subjective uh, point of view. But I remember the first time I experienced the love of God, um, it came with this incredible sense of security, this incredible confidence that God was going to see me through, that I knew that, you know, I was going to forget, I was going to lose sight, I was going to get entangled in stuff, but that he was going to seek me out whenever I did and that he was going to that he was committed to seeing me all the way through. And it, was, it wasn't based on a doctrine. It was, it was this very experiential revelation of his love 
that seeks out and the lost and, and finds the lost sheep and looks for the lost coin and, and just this utter sense of overwhelming confidence um, that he was committed to seeing me through all the way to the end. And, you know, from that place of love, I couldn't respond any other way than to just want to give him everything. And so I'm not, you know, it's like, you know, crystal clear that, you know, we can walk away. Um, but at the same time, just, I mean, that experience was so powerful that I've never been able to shake that. Um, and so could you speak a little bit about that sense of security in his love that we know we're fallen, we know we're going to make mistakes, we know we're going to lose sight and, you know, turn to this side or that side, but that there also needs to be this confidence. You know, there's this sense <laughs> over the years where I've always told the Lord, Lord, if it was just up to me, like, I wouldn't make it. Um, so can you talk about that other side of, you know, his pursuing, seeking, you know, securing love? Amen. It's evidence of salvation. <laughs> when someone feels that way about God, they're not going to walk away from him. Amen. They're not going to be separated from the love of God. And, and their hearts have truly been changed. It, to me, that's evidence of repentance. That's evidence of, of saving faith that is at least leading us progressively into that unfolding relationship. But 100%, I mean, it's like, again, use the marriage configuration. You know, it's not like, you know, why do some couples stay together? Well, it's not because of the law. <laughs> Even though they have sealed it in a covenant, it's not because of the law. It's because they love each other. But it doesn't mean they can't rupture that. They can. But if they don't, it's because love triumphed over independence, selfishness, and the flesh. The first letter to the church of the Ephesians in Revelation, and his criticism of them was that they lost that feeling that you're talking about. He says you, he went over all these things that he was praising them for, but he said, I have this one thing against you. You have left your first love. Return to the first works, to that same attitude, that same perspective. He said, if you do not return, I will come quickly and remove your lampstand because that love is the foundation of everything. We can go do all kinds of works, but if that relationship, that love is not there, it means nothing. Amen? Whatever we do outside of that is a return to the law. It may be a law besides the ceremonial law that the brother was referring to. It may be a law of our own choosing. It may be a law of dutifulness. It may be a law of Martha, Martha. But it is whatever we do outside of that relationship is a return to externalism. And yet he does not say you have lost your first love, so hold still and let God love you again. He says, therefore, repent. So when you, when you are losing that love... The remedy is to repent, to dethrone self and put Christ back as the Lord of your life and come back to that broken spirit and a contrite heart, and you're going to feel that love again. God says the verdict, everything depends, and he contrasts the two. One is they that practice evil, they won't come into the light and everything. But the opposite isn't just those who do good deeds. It's they come into the light to show that everything they have done has been done through God. Anything that's not done through God falls on the other side. Could everybody hear Brother Howard? Also, that if you think about the 
work that happened in Egypt, I mean, God put a peculiar favor on a people without question. I mean, he set them apart as his choice possession, as his heritage. You know, and, and so when we're thinking about this, um, I, was, I was thinking a few things uh, when you were sharing, Josh. I was thinking the first one would be that, you know, at some point I do hope that Christians can move past this idea that we're always going to be these completely compromised, double-minded people who are always going to walk away from God. The promise of the gospel is something way more powerful than that. There is an ability to enter into a death in which that self-preserving life that is hateful towards love gets a death blow. And God raises up something new within you that in yielding to that life, you no longer have to be that one who would always be hateful and compromising towards love. That's ultimately what we do when we walk away. We show that we hate love, that we deny it, that we, we count cheap the love of God, you know? And, and I get that we all can feel as though, well, that's who I am in the flesh. Yes, it is which is why a cross is needed, which is why a tomb is needed, which is why a resurrection is needed. But that is the gospel. The gospel is something that can change and transform. And, and I think that, you know, if God is that person who would go after anyone no matter what, amen, that speaks of him. But we also are talking about covenant. And there is another side to that party. Otherwise, would not all be saved? If that's who God is by nature, then would not all be saved? Well, it is who he is by nature. So then there has to be another party in the equation because not all are saved. There has to be some response. There has to be someone on the other side of that. And so, you know, I think that um, there was a, there was a passage that I was, I was thinking about in Hebrews 10 if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You know, the, it seemed as though this moment in time salvation that we were speaking of, um, they, they were used to a process in which once a year they would go and get sacrifice made for all the sins that they had committed in that prior year, and then they could go back and live their life the way that they wanted to live it. And it's speaking about how that whole paradigm has shifted and has changed and is no longer relevant. You know? And it's saying that a new paradigm has come into play. And that is there is something about this sacrifice by which we can enter in as well. That we can enter in and become a body that lives to do the will of God in everything and in every way. And I would just say that perhaps some of the security that you felt, you know, from the Lord is, is that he predestined, he purposed to have a people holy and blameless set apart unto him who would hear his voice and obey it. And he paid the price to secure it. 
And perhaps what you're hearing from him is keep trusting me, keep believing in the promises, keep coming forward in what it is that I'm laying out because this has the power to go all the way, to form a whole new people in which I will animate and who will explain me into that visible world. And I just feel that that's the, that maybe what God was just depositing into you is all that he has purchased all that he has secured for this great salvation that we cannot neglect. Amen. Amen. Yes, another question. Yes, sir. If I uh... oh, I don't know if us Italians really need this, but uh, I don't know if this is the coffee palpitating my heart or the spirit, but there is something that uh, um, just really punctuated this um, by a dear brother some years ago. It was such a provocative statement, and it really was a turning point in um, kind of walking away from this legalistic minimalism of, um, you know, which, which hill can I just avoid and, you know, only giving the least amount to there is no mountain that we will not climb to meet the Lord. It was this statement, Jesus is not obligated to marry a prostitute. And I'm stopping because... If we give that weight, we start realizing the relational dynamic void of this, this um, concept of if we just claim we can, we can live our best life now, we can continue to preserve ourself and yet also have Christ. It's that mixture that I heard earlier. Um, and it changed my prayers to go, Lord, would you please just give me to God? What do you want what, can, what are you after and how can I give you that in anything? As Paul says, any encumbrance, let us cast it off so that we can come to him. And it does say that the bride has made herself ready and she will make herself ready, being clothed in the righteous deeds of the saints, being washed in the word as we come. And so there is this beautiful confidence that he will bring what started into completion um, if we continue to carry on. So I just thank you for letting me share that. Amen. Thank you. you know, those minimal requirements, can I just say one thing? Those minimal requirements may be this long or they may be this long in the ceremonial law, but they're ultimately anything short of giving everything, which is our heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is the greatest commandment to the Lord. And if we hide behind those, whatever they are, they are substitutes for the reality. You know, Paul spoke so heavy against circumcision. And then he paradoxically circumcised Timothy. He did not see circumcision as an evil act by itself. But he saw its evil in its substitute, in, in it being a substitute for true covenant. And so... Whatever becomes a substitute for that relational reality of love through the Holy Spirit, that is legalism. No matter how long it is or how short it is. And our, our legalism has become increasingly more efficient um, because it's a lot shorter than it used to be. But it's still legalism. Brother, you were going to say something. Romans 10. And confess with your mouth, believe in your heart. I'm saved. Are you saying I have to do more? <laughs> no, let him have the mic. I want to ask him a question. <laughs> okay. How would you harmonize that with Luke 6, 
where Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter, but he who does the will of my Father. I would say I need to obey Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) He's passing that mic off. (laughs) Go ahead. Could you get a mic here, please? In the context in which uh, Romans 10 was written, um, was such that if you did confess Jesus as Lord, um, you were essentially giving up your life to be um, killed in a brutal way. And so it meant much more um, in Rome than it does in a context like um, today. That's an excellent answer. Thank you. You know, I I, I was telling him yesterday that, that in that situation, they were brought before a Roman prefect, and they were required to, to give a pinch of incense to Caesar as if he were a god to burn incense. And if they refused to do it, they had a death sentence. Now, they would show a mercy by killing them with the sword instead of some other more brutal means. But they would kill them regardless. And so they were kneeling before a tyrant and being given a final chance to choose a mercy death by the sword or die in the Colosseum or by some other heinous method. And Paul was encouraging them, confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And I do believe that when that comes from the heart and that belief is a reality, that is the beginning of salvation. There are those in this room who need to make that confession who need to confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is their Lord and believe in their heart that as God raised him from the dead, he will raise them also. But that's not the, that doesn't describe the totality of what is birthed in that moment if that moment is sincere and not something just drummed off the top of our heads. Somebody was going to say something. Praise the Lord. Um, I just would like to humbly submit um, to piggyback what uh, Brother Harvey was saying about <clears throat> Romans 10 um, with the confession, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Um, it is the beginning, but the scripture says you shall be saved. So it's basically saying there is more. And it's basically um, when, I have the, when I'm blessed to have the chance to uh, witness to family members, I'm saying there's more to confession with your mouth and believing in your heart. And as we've covered so far in the symposium, it is an obedience to what God has said. Like you said in Luke 6, Jesus is saying it's the one that, do, that does the will of the Father. And if I could um, humbly submit an example, it's like um, being in a, in a burning building and having the instructions on how to get out. I confess with my mouth and I believe in my heart that these instructions are correct, that the author knew exactly what he was talking about. These are the instructions to get out of the house. But if I don't do what the instructions say, me and the instructions are going to burn up in the building. Amen. Amen. Well, do y'all want to go through any more questions, or does lunch sound more enticing right now? (laughs) Is that your flesh or the spirit speaking? (laughs) 
Amen. Brother Zach is just emphasizing that we don't want to confuse anyone and think that what we're saying is that you got to do all this on your own. Because whatever is done apart from God is darkness. If he cannot get the credit, then it is not worthwhile. If he is not working in you to will and to do, then it is, it's, it's, it's just filthy rags. It's garbage. Amen. He says, let it be seen that it was done through God. So what we're talking about is this, this call to righteousness is an invitation to relationship. And God has raised the standard out of our reach, not to mock us, but to make us say, Lord, I need you. Lord, help me. And to, to draw us into a relationship where he can work in us to will and do his good pleasure. That's what it's all about. And he doesn't have a scorecard. Amen. He has mercy. He is abounding in mercy and full of loving kindness. He is slow to anger and quick to show compassion. Amen. And he is long-suffering with us. But we need to understand that he's wanting us to become one with him through his spirit, one with his love, one with his will. He's not asking us to do anything apart from him. And so these, these high standards of, of living for God and walking by faith, if they seem impossible, then we can say with Jesus, with man, they are. But with God, all things are possible. So let's get with God. Amen. Okay, yes. an even higher standard and he really gave an impossible standard and what a mercy that is that it isn't within our reach it it's going to require a powerful God to come and take over who can really love their enemies and yet he did and I feel such a gratitude in my heart that he gave us a standard that was higher than the law so that we couldn't deceive ourselves that we could possibly achieve it without him because he wanted to come and do it through us.